Pastor Eric, could you turn that mic on and has a switch and then pray for us? Sure, absolutely. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together today, learn more about your word, and we pray, Lord, that as we look in the book of Acts, you would help us to understand the words of Scripture so that we may apply them to our lives, so that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we've got some verses left in this section where Peter is reporting to Jerusalem to convince the leaders there that it was right to have table fellowship with converted Gentiles. So that's what we've been talking about. So here we have verses 11 through 13. Acts 11, 11, 13. He's telling his story. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying and having been sent to me from Caesarea, excuse me, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon who is called Peter brought here. Now, just to remind us of what all has happened in Acts 10 was that God did a series of supernatural uh, miracles, just amazing intervention, direct intervention in history by God to bring about God's purposes which was that God was going to bring people in from every tribe, tongue, and nation and make them part of the people of God by faith by bringing them into messianic salvation. Now, it's not that this idea has never been around or we never heard of it, but it was so hard for the Jews to, to get this. They could not. It, it, was, it took miracle after miracle for them to figure this out. And we may look back at it because we're used to Gentiles being part of God's people and think, why is it so hard? But it's announced throughout Luke and that was happening in Acts and it's very difficult. In fact, this is a Issue that creates narrative tension throughout Luke Acts. And one of the issues, and I think I showed this to you a few weeks ago when I last taught Sunday school. Remember that travel narrative from Luke 9:51 all the way to the end? And and then the key idea was in Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must be rejected. He's going to Jerusalem to be rejected by the people of Jerusalem, the religious leaders. They couldn't get that. 
Why would Israel reject her own Messiah? Why would that make any sense at all? Well, you and I, we, if we study the Bible the way we should, we know some things. And that the Old Testament did predict a rejected Messiah. Eric, could you please comment on this? I know you, you've been working on this too. Yeah, as far as the rejected Messiah idea, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that, Bob. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveling, obviously, with his disciples, and one of the disciples, Peter, remember he tells Jesus after he says, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, he says, some say you're John the Baptist, one of the prophets. But then Jesus looks at Peter and says, well, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ. Well, right away, Jesus says, that he has to go suffer at the hands of the leadership of Israel that is going to be rejected. And remember, Peter says, may it never be. Yeah. Well, then Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. What's very interesting is for the Jewish disciples, as Bob is saying, it's hard for them to get their minds around the idea that the Messiah comes first to, to suffer because in their eschatology, when Messiah comes, glory comes. Well, what's interesting, and I'll show you this in the sermon today, we'll have a quote from 1 Peter 1.11 after Pentecost, Peter gets his doctrine down where he talks about how the prophets prophesied of the sufferings of the Christ and then the glories to follow. Well, finally understood that, no, there was going to be two advents. There was going to be sufferings first followed by the glorious return. And so that is a huge issue. Like you said, Bob, it was completely difficult for these Jews to see that because they just thought Messiah comes, glory comes the pagans yeah. are all put under... And it was all in the Old Testament, but it's intertwined. Yeah, exactly. There's That's plenty right. of prophecy about the throne of David. Yeah. And the glories. Yeah. But there's also prophecy about the rejection Amen. of God's purposes. Right. And sometimes in the same passage, you've mentioned this numerous times that Isaiah 61, where part of the verse has to do with the first advent, the very next part of the verse is his second advent where he brings vengeance upon yeah, the enemies of God. Yeah, and then before, Jesus only quotes part of it. Right, amen. Because he said today this is fulfilled in your hearing. But the last part wasn't. Well, let me tell you something that's really exciting. I hope you appreciate the great blessing and benefit it is for us to be able to look into these things and have the veil, as it were, taken off our eyes so we can see what God's revealed and that we rejoice in them. We rejoice in the truth. If that happens, it's because of God's grace. Just like uh, Eric mentioned there, Simon Peter saw it correctly, but then he turned around and didn't. Yes. I have a question. I had uh, been taught in a class long ago that one of the um, one of the problems that the Jewish people had back then is that they had, I think, and you guys, I just want you to correct me if this is wrong or not. Um, is it the Talmud? Is that what they call it? Uh, in other words, the Jewish scholars had they had gone into all of these other writings. You know, they they had kind of neglected the the core what we call the Old Testament, and they, and they had gone into lots of other writings that really get uh, kind of off track and, and all of that. I think that they had abandoned the study of, of really the Old Testament Scripture for the, 
and, and maybe Ed might know, <laughs> uh, that, that there's this other body of writings that they became very loyal and, and swayed by that. And it's kind of a cautionary lesson for us right now with sticking with biblical truth. Oh, yeah. Ed? I'm, I'm, He's going to give him the mic. I would just say it's not so much of a re- rejection of the Old Testament, but as you, you say, going too far, just adding so much to it. The Talmud, yeah. the Mishnah, and the Gomorrah. That's a good point. And not to mention the Kabbalah. Yeah, it, well, there you ended up with Kabbalah, and Philo was sort of a allegorize everything. Alexandrian Judaism was known for scholarship. But they believed certain things that really weren't quite right, but they were very scholarly. But when it comes to ultimately what was authoritative, it was Moses and the prophets. And we saw that on the Mount Transfiguration when you have Moses and Elijah representing the lawgiver and then the prophets. But they disappeared, and all that's left is the son. And God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Yes, Dana. Well, just a historical aspect of this. The Talmud wasn't written until centuries after the first century. So Christianity and, and what we know as Judaism today were, were forming at this particular time. So the, the Talmud wasn't yet in existence when, when Christ was alive. Um, and then going back to your other thing about the, uh, the Jews having a hard time with this, there were some Old Testament prophecies that talked about a conquering king, and there were other Old Testament prophecies that seemed to talk about a suffering servant. And the Jewish people were really having a hard time putting these two together. Yes. And that's why, at the time of Christ, some Jews believed that there would be two messiahs. They called them the son of Joseph and the son of David. And they thought that one would be the suffering servant and one would be the conquering king. So we now know, in hindsight, that there's going to be two comings of one Messiah, not two Messiahs. Amen. If you look at everything we have in the Gospels and Acts, you come to the conclusion that the big problem wasn't that they couldn't understand all these things, because we wouldn't have either. The problem was when Jesus Christ comes and does what he does... And we'll see this now. I hope you're I hope you're cheating a little working ahead on John 9. Okay. Uh, what does it mean to be blind and all that? That's gonna be fun next week. But Jesus said several times that what the problem was was the, if the miracle woe to you if the miracles have been done in some infamous wicked cities of the past they would have repented but you didn't he proved that he is God the son and everything that John said about him in John 1 1 through 18 and guilt comes when the truth is clear and we prefer something else yes Lonnie um, 
Backing up, I, I just have a question. Uh, you mentioned um, prophets that prophesied that the Jews would reject uh, the Messiah. I'm trying to think. Uh, could, could you... Rejected Messiah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what, what uh, prophets... Isn't prophets? that Isaiah? Yeah, I, Isaiah 53 would be a great example. Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our report? And the implication is no one. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. 53 and... Uh, Psalm 22 would be another one that ties... Oh, oh okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, Good I Good question. Know. Say, by the way, there's something... I don't know how all these things work, but they do work. We have a podcast of old radio shows going on. I think it's through CIC. And what we're going to start doing is rebroadcasting the series on Hebrews. Three of I've already gone through three of them. I honestly, we were talking earlier, I don't know how I did what I did when I was in my 50s. But I can't do that much now. But that material on Hebrews, I've listened to three of them. I'm supposedly editing. There's nothing to edit. Zero. I remember writing longer descriptions. But Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, is powerful. It'll blow you away. When those podcasts come out, do me a favor and listen to them, if that's however that works. And it's fantastic material, and we're using great resources, uh, William Lane, D.A. Carson, and some others, and the material's fantastic. I don't believe a lot of Christians even have an accurate doctrine of Christ. They don't get it. We've got to teach, and we've got to learn. Let's go on. Verses 14 and 15. Now this, and Peter's continuing to tell the story. Why did you go eat with a bunch of Gentiles? And here's what he said. He will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And just as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. Now we know, as I say here from Acts 10, 34 to 43, that Peter preached Christ. Peter preached Christ. We've said over and over again, the way you discern the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit is by whether Christ is confessed. The devil and demons and false teachers will never confess Christ. Why? Because they want to keep everybody in their kingdom of darkness. And the only way out from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son is through believing the truth of the gospel of Christ. Um, yes, this is the word of God, and the Holy Spirit will do what the Holy Spirit does. But uh, when it says in verse 14 there that uh, he will bring you a message through which you and your household will be saved, it would have been so wonderful if it would say saved from the wrath of God. 
But the Holy Spirit, I guess that's what he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Well, it was through Peter. Peter preached it. But the Spirit led Peter to go preach it. I understand. I'm just saying that we'll be saved. I think for a long time, I didn't realize that was from the wrath of God. And it's through Christ Jesus. You're exactly right. God bless you. Exactly. Diane and and I were, we still read the, the actual print newspaper. That's how old we are. That's very old. There was a story about the latest hot church. It's down somewhere south. And it was some supposed Baptist church. Thousands of people, movie clips, excitement, fun, humor, everything everybody wants. Didn't say one word about Christ, the gospel, repentance, or whatever. What people believe is that they're going to be saved from not having an exciting religion or not having, quote, Christian friends. And I've asked people for decades, are your Christian friends Christian or not? Well, I don't know. They go to church. And I keep asking what's preached. Well, they want to, well, it's fun. It's, they talk about Jesus. And I say, which Jesus? And then they just get mad at me. Well, there's only one Jesus. No, there's many. Paul said, if, you, if I preach a different Jesus, you'd be happy enough with that. Yeshua, Joshua, is not a unique name. We've got to preach the truth about Christ. Here's what offends people. A crucified Jewish Messiah who's the, who is who he claims to be, who was rejected by his own people, who died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And we're saved from the wrath of God. And if you redefine all of that, well, then people will be happy with you, and you can have success in the religious world that we live in. Dr. Peterson, in his great commentary, says this, quote, The Spirit came upon Cornelius and his household even before they were invited to trust in Christ and be baptized in his name. In terms of their outward behavior, the coming of the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak in tongues and praise God. However, an inward work of the Spirit is also implied by which he moved them to believe that Jesus was Savior and Lord and gave them assurance that all the blessings of the Messianic era were theirs, thus enabling them to praise God. If we preach the true message forthrightly and clearly, we know that God will use it to rescue people from the domain of darkness and through the forgiveness of sins, transfer them into the kingdom of his beloved son. Always remember, there's two domains. If you're in the wrong one, it doesn't matter if you're happy, if you're excited, if miracles are happening, people are being healed, if demons are manifesting, and all these things are going on. If you do not get out of that spiritual domain, you're lost. That's the point. That's what... We were talking about in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Wait till you hear that. It's unbelievable. It's very powerful. Acts eleven sixteen, And I remembered the word of the Lord, 
how we used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, as we've taught for some time, we believe this is very biblical. Being baptized in the Spirit is not a sign of a second blessing or being a more pious and holy Christian than ordinary ones, but it's what happens when you're regenerated. Okay? And so Peter isn't trying to tell the leadership in Jerusalem that these guys were higher order Christians. He's, he's trying to convince them that they're one of us. They, had, they, they came to Christ the same way we did. We believe in the Trinity, the triune God of the Bible is uh, God, the creator, who existed from all eternity, who's infinitely holy and wise, powerful. Eric, I sent you a question. It came from a, someone who listened to our sermon online. So let me introduce it right now because the topic's on the table. Here's the question that came from a listener. I used a benediction one day that said, who dwells, who alone dwells in unapproachable light. Now, remember the Bible says whom no man can, has seen or can see, right? He approaches in, in unapproachable, he lives in unapproachable light. How can that be true if these people claim they saw God? And that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Not knowing anything else, we assume that means there are a couple male persons. And you can see this one, you can see that one, and that exhausts God. But then, if that's all there was, by the way, I've heard people say that. And I said to them, do you realize that you're teaching Mormonism? Do you know what Mormons believe? They have no transcendent God. Now, I'll do my best, but then we'll go to the real expert over here. The, the God of the Bible, the triune God of the Bible, is both transcendent, and that means above and beyond us of a total order of being beyond anything else, totally infinite, totally uh, all of his attributes he possesses in their infinitude of perfection. And so there are communicable attributes of God that we can have, but that doesn't mean we become God. Because we're not, even in eternity, we're never becoming deity. Because the infinity of God's perfection is from all eternity and it applies to the triune God of the Bible. That's the unapproachable light whom no man can see and so on. But God has chosen to speak to us during these last days in his son. That's Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. If you want to get a better theological education, 
than most people were going to get to go to whatever college they want to go to nowadays. Listen to that series on Hebrews. I'm telling you, you will get an education. You're already hearing Eric on Romans, so you're ahead of most everybody out there. So I sent this question to you, Eric. Do you want to comment on the unapproachable light? Yeah. You know, you think, think of the same idea when you get to um, the book of Exodus, where on the one hand, Moses talks to God face to face, and in another, on the other hand, no one has seen God and lived. And so anytime God shows himself and humans live, it's a mediated showing. And so what happens when we reach glory, and it's because, of, like Bob said, he is transcendent. He is other in the sense of his incommunicable attributes, that is God. And in his transcendence, in his purity and who he is, we would perish being in his presence. Amen. So when God does show himself, it's always in a mediated form. So even the son, remember, he is the mediator par excellence who sent to us it is a mediated form in order to save us not only does he represent us the new adam the new israel he lives the perfect life etc but he is a mediated form now that's one thing we have to distinguish between a mediated revelation and what's called immediate revelation you see the uh, pagans they want to have immediate revelation they want to directly see the angels and god but they don't realize that if they did they'd perish and so what we have to be content with is a mediated revelation. We saw Christ, and we have, in fact, a mediated revelation even in the scriptures. God doesn't talk to us directly as he is. Remember, what happened when the Israelites saw the, the mountain? They were afraid. They said, well, oh, Moses, they, they you said, just go no, up. You go talk to them. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly. They knew they were going to die. They, they would die, yeah. So I think that that's one of the issues, mediated or immediate access. We only have mediated access to God. Right, and that'll be true because of the infinitude of God. We will learn for all eternity and never stop learning. Wow, that's exciting. So, um, Eric, would you uh, define mediated as limited? No. No, I wouldn't say it's limited. I would would say that it's... um, Altered? uh, It's clothed. It's, um, it's given to us in a manner in which we don't perish. Okay. Um, immediate access to God because he is transcendent and other and so holy. We can't see him as he is. And so a mediated format isn't that we're getting some falsehood or something altered, but it's in a, in, in a means in which we can tolerate yeah. and, and that we can actually There's survive. There's a passage that says that the son explained God. Exegeted him, as you put it. In the out. Greek, yeah. is exegeted. And so what we know about God is through the revelation that we have in Scripture. Yes. I'm just thinking of um, the passage in Timothy where there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Right. Yeah, so he was not a spirit Christ. That's one of the things that Christian theology has to emphasize because there are many spirit Christs out there. And by the way, they're being taught to our children. They're being taught to women and anybody willing to listen. We have some people that are selling millions of books who have a false Christ. And people don't get it. So the fact is, whom we've seen, whom we've touched... First John 1, 1 through 3, whom our hands have handled, 
the word of life. The very creator, John 1, 1 through 18, who existed as God and with God. You heard me say this thousands of times. Because if people come to church, they should hear true theology. And I think if preachers say that's better than just reading it in the back of the hymnal. But yet he came, was born of a virgin, and dwelt among us. And he actually physically chose disciples and trained them for three years. And then later, Paul, who was one born out of time, was brought up to speed, who was the last one. And so I just recently got anathematized again and told that I'm going to hell just a couple weeks ago. Because a guy said, I'm the anointed prophet of God. I've done greater miracles than Jesus. And he said that over and over in this email. And I kept preaching Christ to him. I did exactly what it says in the Bible. I said, no, here's Christ. So I told him about, I went to John 1, 1 through 3. I went to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. First John 1, 1 through 3. Told him about Christ again. Only Christ, the uniqueness of Christ. And finally he said that he cursed me and anathematized me. Because I wouldn't believe he had this guy who claimed to be the great prophet of God. When he heard about Christ, he just went dead. He could he didn't want to hear about it. He was mad at me because I wrote against the new apostolic reformation. Apostles and prophets. I've been telling people for 35 years, this isn't from God. It's wicked. And they won't listen to me. I've written 140 articles. They don't want to listen. We want to be deceived. How is it bad to tell people about Christ? If I don't do anything else while I'm still here on the earth, I will preach Christ. Yes. I just wanted to thank you guys for making this so clear because it was really helpful for me when I thought of modalism. Because, you know, Hebrew tells, Hebrews tells us that we can go to the throne of grace and ask for help, you know. And, yeah. and, um, but we don't go on our own. The mediator is sitting there between us and God. And in modalism, he's not there. Who's there? Who's up in the throne room? And, you know, so it just became such a clear picture for me. So thank you very much. Well, it's our honor to do so. That's a good point. Modalism, Jesus only Pentecostalism, is heresy. And we used to watch these John Ankerberg tapes back in the 80s. And I remember uh, Walter Martin dealing with those modalists. And he just confronted them. And he finally said, well, let me try this. And he confessed Christ, confessed the gospel, confessed everything that's true about Jesus Christ. And then he said to the modalists, am I a Christian who's going to heaven? They wouldn't say, they wouldn't say yes. You had to join their cult or else. All right. Luke 3.16, John baptized the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.5. For John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Joel 2.28, and it will come about after this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, 
Your old men will dream dreams. See, there's a place for old men. <laughs> your young men will see vision. And from even your male and female servants, I'll pour out my spirit. So God is going to save representatives from every tribe, all different kind and types of people. God is most glorified when lost, hopeless people from everywhere in the world, every nook and cranny, are saved. And he does it. He does it. And sometimes we meet people that are from long, far away, and Diane and I were talking the other day about, remember the Rwanda's kind of faded in history? The Tutsis and, what was it, Hutu? They killed each other. The 55,000 men were killed by one. This is an ethnic cleansing. To us, they are, the people appear to be the same, but there's two different tribes, Rwanda. And a friend of ours, Sam Alari, who came to the Lord back in the 80s and got married and was part of our, our church back then, his parents were killed through in that ethnic cleansing. And he lost everything. But he came to Christ. And he ended up, he's a friend of our, of your son, mom, of Wayne's, he's Wayne's friend. Um, he has, he's an auto mechanic. And he just loves the Lord. And that honors God. What about the 55,000? We can't, that's world history. It's awful. But God is glorified by saving a remnant from every tribe and tongue. And I've seen some of them. Finest people you'll ever meet in your whole life. Now here God decided to save some God-fearing Gentiles. And it was hard for the Jews to accept the fact that they'd suffered for being God's chosen people for all those years. But now these other people come in late and they, and they find all of the same messianic blessings. Wasn't there a parable about that? The 11th hour? Dr. Peterson said, Peter's remembrance of this saying points to the fact that the spirit received by Cornelius and his household was that gift which exalt, the exalted Messiah had poured out on his Jewish disciples at Pentecost. The spirit now defines the boundaries and character of the people of God, not the law of Moses. Mount of Transfiguration. Moses disappears. Elijah disappears. Voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Verse 17. Therefore, if God gave them, Peter is again trying to convince the leadership in Jerusalem to accept these people and have table fellowship, the same gift is also to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I to be able to hinder God? That's a good argument. What are you going to say? Oh, no, you should have hindered God. Well, of course you can't say that. 
Boy, I had some fun. I'm going to use that in some of my future teachings here. I looked up the word hinder in my logo software from the Greek and pulled out all the uses of it. And as a Greek word, it can be used in different ways, including hindering something that was bad. But it's interesting that as it's used, particularly in Luke X, it's usually hindering God's purpose. And so in this case, it would be a, that would be a negative thing to do. Maybe we can look some of these up. Mike, could you look up Luke 9, 49? And Eric, you, you're right there. Luke eleven fifty two, Norm. Luke eighteen sixteen, and Christy, Acts eight thirty six, and Peter, Acts ten forty seven. We'll see that hindering, in this case, is probably not good. The, the word hinder, by the way, is kaluo. Yes. Okay, John, um, 949. No, Luke. I'm sorry, Luke. <laughs> 949. John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop them because he does not follow us. Right. In that case, it was a bad thing. I was just studying that. I hope to talk about that one of these days soon. I am really having some fruitful studies in Luke Acts. I'm, I'm trying to write a CIC article. Eric, 11.52. Luke 11.52, it says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who are entering. Yeah, uh, you didn't enter, and you tried to stop anybody that wanted to. That gets a woe, doesn't it? So it's bad there. Uh, Luke 18.16. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Wow. I can't do it right now. I gave Eric my reading. This last week I had a major breakthrough reading in Luke in the Greek. And I I ran it by Eric here. I think it's a good reading. I'm going to present it to you one of these days. The idea of the children has been misinterpreted throughout church history. And I think I see what it is. And it has to do with that two-domain theology I'm talking about. I'm trying to write an article on it. Let's just say the easy version of it. The ones who know that they're going to know nothing about the ways of God or the kingdom of God unless they listen to Jesus Christ who came to bring that, are the ones who are blessed. The ones who think they can figure it out will hinder whoever does try to come. Okay, go ahead. Okay, Acts eight thirty six. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Yeah, what hinders, hinders me? The answer me. is nothing. Mm-hmm. And then Peter Acts 10.47. Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Amen. So the, the idea is don't hinder what's right. Now, I wrote a book about this. 
I was talking about this church that's got thousands of people. There's been a bunch of them. They, they try to say, see, you're wrong because you're hindering people. We're just getting everybody that wants to come in. But they're equivocating on the term church. Their version of church doesn't require conversion. So Ecclesia is no longer the called out ones, but a group of religious consumers who gather together to have a good time. So hindering has got nothing to do with it. This is about people who were converted, who believed in Jesus, who wanted to fully obey Christ. And some person says, you can't do it because of the parochialism. Dr. Peterson says, anyone who stands in the way of full incorporation of others into the church, when they genuinely trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, stands in opposition to God himself. So there is a positive reason for accepting Gentiles who believe. God has given them the same gift of the Spirit. And a negative reason, beware of opposing God's revealed will. We don't want to hinder God. God's purpose will go forward. Yes. I just had a question just about hindering God. We know that no purpose of God can be thwarted. And I know you've talked about the moral will of God and like the effectual will. And we know that no one can snatch you know, a Christian out of his hand. So I, I'm just curious how hindering God in these situations kind of fits in. With That's that. a very good question. I appreciate it. That's very astute. Here's the deal. The fact that God's purpose goes forward because no purpose of thine can be thwarted doesn't mean that we can't purposely stand against it and try to hinder it. Okay, so John 9, when we do that next week, you will see that. Well, what about in 3 John? Oh, I'm still preaching in 3 John, ain't I? Yeah, two more times. But there's some guys that came from John, and some guy thought he was hot stuff. He said he was going to throw anybody out of the church that listened to the apostle John. Okay, so you can take charge of a religious organization and try to stop people from doing what's right but in the end God will prevail and he'll bless those here's one more verse it needs be that offenses come but woe to him through who they come it's still real on the the scene of history we've got decisions to make are we going to agree with God or are we going to hinder him hey we're doing pretty good here All right, one more So Peter is very good at telling them what God was doing, right? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Granted is didomi in the aorist active, it means given as a gift. Didomi is a gift. 
Now we would think that that would resolve it. Right here, right now, it's all resolved. But have you read ahead? <laughs> it's not resolved. They got to have a council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. Then you would think, well, now it's resolved. But we get to Acts 20, and Paul is set his face in a sense like Jesus did in Luke to go to Jerusalem, and he was going to be rejected in Jerusalem. So this is not easy. So uh, again, Dr. Peterson, the narrative does not record a repentance from idolatry or from an immoral life on the part of Cornelius and his household. Yet, even for those described as devout and God-fearing, turning to Christ involved a radical reorientation of allegiance and devotion, which is what is meant in this case by repentance that leads to life. In other words, these weren't people that were like robbers and murderers and all this. They were devout in their own way, but they didn't really know Christ. So it's still repentance. Being pious in a religious sense isn't enough to save us. Now, oh, so we got to give God glory when he saves. Now, let me go to a new slide I created. This is your assignment to help you interpret John not chapter 9 for next week. We're going to do a read-through. And I'm going to try to help us learn how to interpret narrative. What are some of the things to look for? Because this is a fairly long chapter, but it's one unit. By the way, if you're ever reading commentaries, sometimes a narrative unit is called a pericope. A pericope. It simply means... It doesn't necessarily mean a chapter or a paragraph, but a narrative unit that tells a certain story and has some kind of tension that gets resolved and makes a point. It's a pericope. It just happens to turn out that John 9 is one grand pericope. That's why I chose it. So what are we looking for as we prepare for next week? Look for repeated themes or questions. Now, not everybody has the Greek language or the tools, but you can use them if you do. It really helps. I've been using the Greek now on all the stuff I do, including writing articles. It's amazing what's in there. Let me give you an example and explain this. I'm not saying the Greek experts who translate the New Testament aren't good at what they do. They are. They wouldn't have got their job, generally. But not everyone who's a super expert, let's say, in translating Luke from the Greek and English, there's decisions to be made. Now, remember when I was teaching in John's epistles, 
We talked about face-to-face is literally mouth-to-mouth. Now, everybody translates it face-to-face, which is appropriate. Mouth-to-mouth would not help us understand, and it would actually confuse us. Because in English, that means resuscitate a heart attack victim. Face-to-face would be talking to each other. But they're meaning, when we face-to-face, we mouth-to-mouth talk. It's just how their language works. But sometimes it's not so clear. Let me give you an example. One of them I've run across lately is when it says that in Luke that Jesus Christ set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, some translators take that literally, set his face. But the meaning in English would be determined. That means he's determined. But in the case of Luke, set his face has a good reason to be interpreted literally. And that reason being, it's an allusion to the Old Testament. And there were prophets. Now, I don't have the material in front of me. It's at home sitting on my desk. Can anybody find, is it Isaiah 51.7? Where, where is it? But the term face becomes, prosopon becomes important. So in Luke Acts, set his face ends up being important. But not all English translations will have that. But that doesn't prove which one is a better or worse, because I wouldn't know this if I hadn't done it with the Greek to start with. Anybody find it? If not, don't worry. I got it sitting on my desk at home. The miracle is I'm here. I'm not sitting there at my desk falling asleep. I was so bad yesterday. I was so sick. Okay. But the narrator in Luke, now let me help you. If you get a modern commentary, you'll see the term narrator or sometimes implied narrator. Let me explain that to you. It doesn't mean liberalism necessarily. One of the good things that happened, I learned this from uh, uh, Dr. Stein, Dr. Block, Dr. Versaput, and so on, is that in the early 20th century, the battle against the liberals meant we believe the Bible's really true. There really was a Luke who wrote Luke and Acts. There really was real apostles. All these things really happened. And then the liberals wanted to question everything. It's all mythological. There are no miracles and so on. So that battle went on and on. But eventually, do you have the answer? Is it Isaiah 57? 50 in verse 7. I was only one chapter off. (laughs) Maybe getting old isn't so bad after all. Who can read that? The way and you get to read it, you found it. Yeah, get your coffee. 
The Lord will help me, therefore I have not been humiliated. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Right. There's an allusion to that in Luke. Isaiah, Isaiah prophecy is being fulfilled. So it needs to be translated. But not every New Testament scholar is going to know that. And so if they say he determined to go, that's essentially the meaning. But there's an allusion to the passage. You know, I was just going to say, for all of those who are going to be teaching or doing a Bible study, what Bob is showing you is so helpful because this is how we determine the section of Scripture that we're going to teach. And this, what Bob is revealing to you, this is how you're going to determine what section of Scripture you should teach. I remember I sat down with Bob when I was brand new to all of this, and he helped me say, what's the main point? And so that's what you're looking for in a narrative. What is the main point? So thank well, you, Bob. I hope I wasn't too rude, but the first time Eric preached, <laughs> he had a great material. He missed nothing. What you have, like five or six concepts? And I said, count concepts, not verses. And because you're identifying a pericope. Now, there's one big concept I'm helping you in John 9. So what do you want to do now for next week? Look for repeated themes or questions. Repeated terms. Now, again, without the Greek, you're at the mercy of whatever translation you have, but sometimes there's a term that seems out of place. Why is that there? There might be a good reason. A narrator put it in there to get our attention. Look for Old Testament allusions. To allude is to bring up the theme or concept whether you cite a verse or not. Number Four here, statements by the biblical author that reveal motives. Now, in theology, I was talking about the implied narrator. Now we have access to a lot of brilliant scholars because we quit fighting about whether Luke really wrote Luke. The implied narrator, if it's Luke, fine. I think it's Luke. Here's the point. Did John write John? I think he did. But... The narrator does something that in theology they call the omniscient narrator. The omniscient narrator. Now, that wouldn't make any sense other than the inspiration of Scripture. But what is the omniscient narrator? Go ahead, Eric. You know, I just have an example of what you're saying. It's a real quick one from Luke 19:11. Go ahead. Um, here's where the narrator tells you why is Jesus going to tell you the parable? What's the parable about? Luke says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell the parable because now Luke is telling you why because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Right. So now all of a sudden he's tipping you off. Why? That's it. Here? There's the omniscient narrator. Ordinarily, you wouldn't know that. But Luke knows it because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Parenthetical comments. The narrator might tell you what somebody else's motives are. And that's something we ordinarily don't know. So I am committed, dear flock, to get you a seminary level education 
So, because I don't know who God's going to raise up. He's going to raise everybody up. One of the points that Gospel of Grace Fellowship elders have made is that we're here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I decided I need to do that because I don't know where to send anybody. We need to learn it right here and right now. Okay, so the omniscient narrator, the revealed motives, narrative tension. I had a teacher that where we had to track that as Samuel went up and goes down. Does he get more tension? Is the tension? This is any movie, any story, any book has tension. How does it get resolved and when? Here's your assignment. What is the main point? I think we're going to have fun doing this. And we're going to learn. John chapter 9, the whole chapter that we're going to get through it in one week. I don't know, but have your answer. Yes. And, and when you say the main point, we're talking one, one main point we have to decide, right? What's the main okay. point? That doesn't mean you don't learn other things, but this pericope is making a point. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather today. Thank you for your flock and for all the people that are serving and each of us and that we can fellowship with one another. We ask you to bless Eric as he preaches to us today in Jesus' name. Amen.